It is good to be with you this morning. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to ask you to keep your Bibles open. And uh, we're going to read through the latter portion of this chapter together this morning as we walk through the text. We'll not read through all of it uh, in the beginning, but we'll walk through it together piece by piece to continue in our study of Matthew's Gospel. If you're just joining us, we're in the midst of a study of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as the King who has come, and he is declaring his kingdom, and his kingdom is come. And so we have asked at this point in the Gospel, what does that mean, and why does it not look like what uh, others believe that it would mean? As a matter of fact, we have seen Matthew presenting this King and people responding differently to King Jesus. We mentioned it last week because we started this study in chapter 13, this new uh, uh, teaching portion that, uh, of Jesus' teaching that is focused on the parables. And we said there was some question maybe in Matthew's mind as he's trying to address why have people responded so differently if Jesus is the king and the kingdom is here. The disciples had responded to Jesus' call to discipleship with abandon and allegiance to him. They have abandoned all and come and followed after Jesus. And we've seen that time and again with the disciples. The crowds respond to him in amazement at his miracles, wonder at his authority, but ultimately they seem to be skeptical and are questioning and will continue to do so. And yet the religious leaders, the ones who should recognize the one that came from God, the one who is fulfilling the promises of Abraham and the promises to David, the, re- the religious leaders, the very ones who should see this is the Messiah, they are antagonistic toward Jesus and toward his teaching. And they say that his teaching and indeed Jesus is from, are, 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 is from Satan and they are conspiring to kill him. So the question comes in Matthew's gospel, if this is the king, if he is the son of of David, if he is the son of Abraham, then why are people responding this way? Specifically, maybe, why are the religious leaders responding this way? The religious people should have recognized. So if he is the promised one of God, why is everyone not responding to him and to this kingdom with abandon and allegiance? Shouldn't the religious leaders know and be able to recognize Jesus? Why do some confess him as Lord, others question his identity, and some conspire to kill him? So Matthew's addressing that in the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, this teaching by parables and parables specifically of the kingdom of heaven. So you remember Jesus was by the sea in chapter 13, verse 1. He had come out and gone by the Sea of Galilee to teach, and the crowds had gathered. So I want you to picture what's happening here. The crowds had been so large, Jesus gets into a boat and goes just out off the shore. The crowds are there, and he's teaching them by parables. And told you last week, I'd remind you this week, that a parable is simply a story that's set in a common context. So Jesus is teaching them by these parables. They're parables. They're very practical. They're very uh, understandable by folks. They would be about everyday experiences for those who are hearing. And indeed, that's the case in chapter 13. As we saw, many of these parables are about uh, a farmer in that uh, agricultural life. And so Jesus was teaching in stories that they could relate to and understand. But these stories are not about how to be a farmer Or today we'll see they're not about a particular one, how to be a real estate agent. They're about uh, spiritual life. They're about living for and, uh, and in the kingdom of God. And so parables are stories that are very practical, but they have a spiritual 
application. And then I finally said, normally parables have one main point or application. We come to a parable not looking to make every little piece of it match something that we can draw out. We come to it saying, what is Jesus teaching us? And most of the time it's one major lesson that he just wants us to allow to soak into our hearts and change our lives. And so... Jesus, even in this text, or excuse me, Matthew, even in this text, is going to address the parables. Jump with me, if you will, down to verse 34 in Matthew chapter 13. In the midst of the parables we're going to look at today, Matthew picks up here and he says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We have a quotation by Matthew of Psalm 78, a Psalm of Asaph, that is speaking to us about how Jesus will come, a fulfillment, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy here. And, and Matthew telling us Jesus was speaking everything he was speaking to the crowds in parables. And the question even today comes to us is why? Well, I'll take you back to verse 10 of chapter 13. Last week, the disciples asked Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? And he said there's two major reasons. Number one, it reveals truth to those who believe. Jesus will say there in verse 11, I'm revealing to you. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This sovereign rule of God over his creation. And Jesus is saying, I'm teaching you in parables because it's been given to you to understand them. Who is you? Those who believe. Those who trust in Christ. Parables will reveal truth to us. So we come today to the text church. Those of us who have gathered in the name of Christ, we come here to address these parables, really to let them address our lives so that we can rejoice in the knowledge that they give us of the kingdom. And so I want to invite you today to rejoice in the truth of the kingdom of God. The sovereign rule of our God has been revealed to us. Today we'll have more secrets of the kingdom revealed through these parables and we will rejoice in them as believers. But not only are they to reveal truth? They conceal truth to those who refuse or do not believe. So we dealt with that last week. So this morning, if you're listening as a believer, then this has the purpose of bringing you into worship of our great God. If by chance you've come into this place today and you don't know the Lord, these parables, perhaps they will just be stories to you. Perhaps you'll just walk away and think, well, those are nice stories that the preacher talked about. But it will conceal the truth of the kingdom to you today. But I want to say the Spirit of God can use these very parables to draw those who are to believe and who do believe to himself. So listen. Listen with intention. Listen with hearts open to our God, with minds that are engaged in what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom. And so he begins answering what I believe is the first question, the parable of the sower, the question that we addressed last week, why are so many people responding in different ways? And Jesus says, Here are the different re- or here's the reason that people are responding in different ways to the message of the kingdom. It's because the soil of their life, that is, their hearts are different. Some hearts are soft to understand. Some hearts are hard and the seed can't sink in. Some hearts are uh, superficial and so they respond with joy, but then they, they, uh, they go on away. Some hearts are so divided that uh, uh, the cares of this world are going to choke out the seed of the gospel. So don't be surprised when people respond differently. Today we're going to look, beginning in verse 24, at different parables, some more parables that help us understand the kingdom even further. So let me call your attention, if I can, to chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 24. We'll read together this first parable, verse 24 through 30, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. 
You listen to the word of the Lord as I read. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. If the parable of the sower helped us understand how different people receive the message of salvation, this parable addresses this question. Why is Jesus, who is proclaiming to be king and proclaiming a new kingdom, why is he not bringing judgment upon the wicked now? I believe there was a a common understanding that when God would bring the Messiah into our world, when the King would come, and that's indeed who Jesus is claiming to be, He's proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. As a matter of fact, in chapter 12, He said, If I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If that kingdom has come upon us, then why is He not judging now? Why is He not judging the wicked And so Jesus is telling a parable to tell us about the secrets of the kingdom of God so that we would know there is a judgment coming, but in the grace and patience of our great God, the judgment has been held off while the king is doing his work. So you have a story of a farmer who is sowing this good seed in his field and the seed comes up. But before the seed comes up, there's an enemy of the farmer and the enemy of the farmer comes and sows weeds in the midst of uh, this field. Now, I don't know that this is a a realistic um, uh, scenario. I'm sure it may have happened, but I don't know that enemies come and sow weeds in your fields very often, but these people would know about weeds and they would know about sowing. It is something that would be a, a part of their life and you could know how radical it would be for somebody to come and sow weeds in the midst of your field when you had sown, plowed the ground, gotten it ready and sown these good wheat seeds. And so the disciples in just a few verses, as a matter of fact, down in verse 36 When Jesus goes back into the house, the disciples say, Lord, explain this parable to us. And he's going to show us what the parable means. When you talk about the the master responding to his servants, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, here's what the parable means. Go down to verse 37 with me. When Jesus begins to speak to his disciples, he says, Jesus, the son of man, he says, I am the sower of the good seed. I am the farmer. So he goes on, he says, the field is the world. Now, be careful here because we need to understand that this entire world is God's world and he has brought up people. And so he is going to say in verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And so the sons of the kingdom are broader than just the church. I think there's some interpretation of this that maybe this is talking about those inside the church. Certainly you could say that uh, there are those that are inside the church that claim to be uh, uh, sons of the kingdom and they're not. But I think right here, Jesus says the field is the world. It's broader than just the church. As a matter of fact, when he goes on to talk about the kingdom in just a few verses, the kingdom of God is broader than just the church. And Jesus is going to draw all of those to him. It is his kingdom. So the field is the world. 
the good seed are believers sown in the world. The enemy sower is the devil, as he says to us in verse 39. The enemy sower, the one who is sowing evil and causing and, and, and uh, uh, leading to lawlessness, it introduces to us, I believe, just as an aside here, something that you and I need to consider And that is the fact that last week we talked about salvation being something that God is sovereignly doing. This is his world. And uh, he says to some it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And then we also talked about the responsibility we have to to, um, respond to the gospel. And that our human responsibility does not crush or, or diminish God's sovereignty in it. But we can't do away with either. Here we have the influence of Satan in our world. And it's another factor that's here. Satan certainly doesn't. Uh, cause anything, but he does influence our world. He's certainly not equal to God. There's no cosmic battle that we don't know who's going to win here. Satan's influence in the world is certainly not greater than the farmer. The farmer's deciding what he's going to do with his field. But Satan does influence our world. So there's another power here that's, uh, that's involved, and he is the enemy sower. It's against the kingdom of God. The harvest then, he says, is the close of the age. It's when all of This time shall be over and Jesus will come back and he will reap and he will bring judgment. The servants, he says, are the reapers here, are the angels of God. And so Jesus is saying there's a time. I think the, the, the main point of the parable as you read it was Jesus was saying, let's, let's not sow up, let's not pluck up the, wheat, the weeds yet. Because in doing so, you might mess up the, the fruit that's coming. So let's not do that yet. Let's let them grow up. I want you to note a couple of things about this first. Note that you sometimes, they, in this particular instance, seems to be that they could not tell the difference in wheat and weeds until the grain came. The grain, the head of the wheat started showing. And then they were like, these are weeds in the midst of the wheat. And then they could tell and they go to the farmer. Sometimes the, uh, the world, I think I would say the statement to us church this way, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We as believers live in the midst of a world and and there are going to be weeds and wheat here and there's coming a day when God is going to come and He is going to separate those who know Him and those who don't know Him. But in His grace, in His patience, in the fact that our God is slow to anger, He has not done so. He is giving an opportunity. Aren't you glad that the first time Jesus came, He didn't come in judgment. He came to reap the judgment of our God on our behalf. You see, this is our great God. Oh, there's coming a day, my friends, of judgment. There is coming a day, and you need to hear that, and you need to make that part of what you say when you preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in our day when it is not popular to talk about hell, it's not popular to talk about a fiery furnace down in verse 42. It's not popular to talk about the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the reality that hell is real and heaven is real and the difference is Jesus Christ. The gospel says there's coming a day of judgment and Jesus will return to our earth and he will judge and he will separate those who know him and those who don't. The weeds from the wheat. And Jesus is saying, don't worry, just wait. Judgment is coming. So for those who know that judgment came in this first coming of Christ and He took the wrath of our God for you and you respond in repentance and belief to the King, then judgment has come and it's been taken for you on the cross. But for those who will not repent, who will not believe, then they will experience judgment and it will be great. Look at verse 42, 41. Son of man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin 
and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, let me tell you this morning, this is not good news for those who do not know our Lord. In that day, that day of judgment, it is coming, Jesus says, but it will be an awful and an awesome day. It will be a day full of condemnation, but also be a day full of celebration. It will be a day full of darkness, but it will also be a day full of delight. Look at verse 32. Then, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. My friends, Jesus is coming back. And because He tarries is a mark of His grace that we could proclaim the gospel and people could respond in repentance and belief. But make no mistake about it. The King will judge. And you and I have an opportunity not only to respond if you've never come to Christ this morning, but we have an opportunity to call our family and our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and the nations to come to Him and respond to the King in repentance and faith. But there is coming a day. So... Why is there evil in the world, we might ask? Why is there suffering in our world? If Jesus is God, then wouldn't He just do away with evil and suffering? Wouldn't He bring judgment? Not yet, Jesus says, but it's coming. It's coming. Just wait. Our King is patient. The end has not come. The full coming of the kingdom will bring the end of this age, and it will bring judgment. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah, and He will reign forever and ever. Look at the last phrase in verse 43. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, Oh, judgment is coming. But I'm being patient. It's not yet. It's not yet. So for those of you this morning who are asking, why is is God not bringing judgment now? Because He's patient. He's graciously waiting. Perhaps this morning you'll hear this message and you'll know heaven and hell are real and you need to respond to the gospel. You need to be the one that says, I need to repent and believe. I'm going to invite you to do so this morning. If the Spirit would allow you to see that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will be a forever kingdom, and Jesus is a forever king, and you would come to Him today, then come. Come. You are why He is waiting. He's patiently waiting, saying, would you come to the kingdom? He's drawing you today. Don't don't refuse. So, This is the case and the kingdom is not coming yet in its full fruition. But Jesus has already said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said in chapter 12, the kingdom of God is upon you. Then how is the kingdom here then, Jesus? And so Matthew takes us to two other parables that help us to understand the way that the kingdom of heaven is in our world. So would you look with me at verse 31 of Matthew chapter 13. We read two short parables to talk about the way the kingdom of God is effective and what it's doing in the earth right now. So look with me. Matthew 13 verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Here, Jesus is addressing the spread and growth of the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of heaven will grow from the smallest garden seed to the largest garden plant. It will grow from a small amount of yeast to influence all of the flour it is placed in. David Platt, in preaching on these two parables, says that both of these parables help us to understand the spread and growth of the kingdom, one externally, one internally. And I think he's got a a good handle on these two parables. The parable of the mustard seed here talks about how the kingdom of God is going to grow externally. The mustard seed is representative of the kingdom of God and how from the smallest of beginnings, it is going to grow to the largest of the garden plants. From the humble birth of our Savior to calling 12 disciples to Himself to follow Him into the book of Acts as we read of the spread of the gospel and these men giving all that they are to Christ and then the church growing exponentially in the, God, in the uh, book of Acts as the gospel spreads, the kingdom is growing and spreading until the kingdom reaches us. And aren't you glad that because of this small seed that began to grow and the kingdom began to spread throughout the world that somehow, some way, the gospel has come down generation after generation until it was preached upon your ears and my ears and God drew our hearts and gave us repentance and faith and we too were brought into the kingdom of God so that thousands of miles between where we are and where Jesus was preaching, the gospel has spread through the world. And my friends, the gospel is continuing to spread. Church, there's good news about the gospel spreading and God somehow somehow does it in His providence. Sometimes through us missionaries sending, going. Sometimes through Him dispersing His own people throughout the world in other providential ways. But the gospel is spreading. You and I are called to be a part of that very gospel. It's spreading externally, but it also spreads internally. The story of the leaven here, as he talks about it in verse 33, is uh, indicative of the leaven and the yeast that we put in bread. And uh, while there's some disagreement on how much three measures of flour would actually be, there's all agreement that it would be enough flour to at least make bread for 100 people. So if you start there, and it could be more than even three measures as we think about that, what you know is there's just a little bit of yeast that infects the entire batch of dough. It doesn't take much, but it, it just works its way through so that that dough will rise and be bread and he says just like the woman took this leaven and she put it in the dough and it just infects and and uh, influences the whole batch of dough so the kingdom of heaven is put into us and it 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 infects all of us the kingdom placed in you the kingdom of God the the wonder of the spirit of God put in us is touching our beliefs our desires our loves our fears our motivations our words our actions and the kingdom spreads in us until it affects all of us so both ways external internal the kingdom of God starts small and it spreads to have great influence and that's what our God says so you're wondering how is the kingdom working here it is growing from a small fledgling group of 12 men following after Jesus to impacting the world and church you and I are part of that very growth of the kingdom waiting longing looking for the coming of the king And so the question would then come, I believe for us, then how am I to respond to this king and this kingdom? 
If I know now that judgment is coming, that there is an end, that this kingdom will come in its full fruition, and God will bring judgment, and, and the kingdom is, even though it started small, it's going to spread and it's going to be great. How do I respond to this kingdom? Go down to verse 44. Well, you're going to skip over what we've already read and Matthew talking about the parables, Jesus talking about the parable of the wheat, and go down to verse 44, the next parable in this text. Now, I want you to read it with me. Some of my favorite parables in all of the Gospel of Matthew right here. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So how do we respond to the kingdom of heaven? Just like this man who found a treasure in a field. Jesus doesn't give us any other details. I think our minds can probably fill in a lot of those details. Maybe he's wandering around. Maybe he just happens upon it one day. I don't know. He doesn't tell us. He just says he discovers this treasure hidden in a field. I'll just remind you that they didn't have banks or, or, or safety deposit boxes to put their treasures in in Jesus' day. So they had to keep them safe. And the best way to keep them safe is bury them. So they would, they would bury their treasure in a field. And this man just happens upon this treasure. He has seen this treasure and he found it. And then he said, I'm going to cover this back up. So he discovered it and he covers it back up and he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that field because that treasure is worth more than anything else that he has. Now, I'll just say to you, be careful not to overanalyze the parable. I think many of these parables have been overanalyzed. This one, perhaps more than any other. Because we want to make a call on, well, what is Jesus teaching us? Wouldn't it morally be right to go and tell the man, hey, I found your treasure? Wouldn't it be best to talk about uh, uh, other things about this parable, but don't, don't make it more difficult than it is. Jesus is telling us about a situation that just is. He's not trying to tell you how to, how to do real estate and how to do deals when you find this or that on the land. He's telling you here, there's a man who found a treasure, he covered it up, and he went and sold everything he had because the treasure was worth everything to him. And he went to get it, and he joyfully sells everything to buy the field. He's not making a moral judgment on this man covering up a treasure he found. He's making a judgment upon the joyful willingness to give up everything in order to get a treasure that he has discovered. Why? Listen, because he's discovered something that is worth more than everything else he has, and it can be his. And this morning, the question for us is. Are we willing to give up everything that we have joyfully to be a part of God's kingdom because we've discovered something that's worth more than everything else we own or have or are and it can be ours? The point is everything else pales in comparison to the treasure revealed to us, which is Christ Jesus. Everything else pales in comparison to it. So how should I respond? I should do everything that I can, whatever it takes, to come into this kingdom that will be a forever kingdom. Then in verse 45, we have a a parallel story. There's here a merchant who is searching for fine pearls. He is a merchant, so he is searching for them in, in many ways, perhaps. He's probably spent years, maybe days, maybe months, maybe years, I don't know, searching for fine pearls and pearls. And finally, he comes upon one that is of great value to him. It is of such great value that he does the unthinkable. 
He finds a pearl that he longs for and values so much that he's willing to sell everything he has to buy that pearl. Now think about that for a moment. We can all understand what Jesus is saying here because we know the foolishness of selling everything you have for one pearl. Why would you sell everything for one pearl? It is only because that one pearl is worth more than everything else that you own to you. You see, owning it, owning that pearl is everything to him. And so, it's the same story. Everything else pales in comparison because of the value of this pearl. Giving up everything because something else becomes everything. I want you to note here that one man stumbles upon his treasure. The other man is in search of his treasure. But both gladly sell all to obtain their treasure. Church, it is the point of these parables that how you and I respond is whatever it takes. Jesus will say it later like this, die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Give up everything. He is worth it. You say, Pastor, wow, this is pretty radical. Surely Jesus is not suggesting I sell everything to obtain the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this, what is everything to you? What is everything you are and everything you have and everything you ever hope to be? What is it in comparison to eternal life with the king? What is it? Hold it up today and ask, what is it? What is the stuff I'm grasping at here? What is it that you would give everything to have? What comes to your mind at that moment? Is it to know Christ? Because that's the radical nature of this parable. And sometimes it's radical enough that we actually do have to give up. In order to gain Christ. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. As he's speaking about what he's given up to gain Christ. He says, whatever gain I had. Whatever I had in my life. Whatever gain I had. I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Church, this is the attitude this parable is calling us to. What is everything to you? And how does it compare to knowing the one who is king forever and being in his kingdom? Jesus ends this section with one more parable and instructions to his disciples. And we'll close here. Verse 47 through 50, the parable of the net. Listen to the word of the Lord again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Church, here we are yet again. Jesus giving us this parable, reminding us this idea that there is coming a day when 
People will be separated between those who know God and those who don't. The weeds and the wheat here, the good fish and the bad fish, however you want to draw this, God is coming and he will separate mankind into those that belong to him and those that do not. And the question comes for us, are you ready? Judgment is coming. Jesus is returning. And when he comes, there will be a judgment. He will separate Those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. Those who believe and those who do not. Those who have repented and those who have not. And the question this morning for us out of the parable here is, are we ready for the judgment of our God? Because He is coming. And for the second time in this teaching section, we see Jesus saying there will be a fiery furnace Hell is real. My friends, there's coming a day when you will face the judge of all judges. And he will look at your life. And he will say, righteous or wicked. And the Apostle Paul reminded us in the statement that I just quoted to you. It cannot be a righteousness of our own. It is a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Why? Because He has taken our judgment for us. He has taken the wrath of God for us and by faith we have come to Him. And so we will be counted righteous through repentance and faith. Are you ready for His coming? In the meantime, there are instructions to disciples, verse 51 and 52, and we close. Have you understood all these things, Jesus says to His disciples? They said to Him, yes, and He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Remember, we started this section with Jesus saying, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You, you and I, disciples of Christ, not only them, we've been given these same secrets. God has put his spirit in us that we could understand the word of God and the kingdom of God. And we know how it is that God is accomplishing his will. What is God's divine design for the kingdom, for our world, for the church? God has revealed it to us and we now know how it is that God is fulfilling his promises from the Old Testament, his promises to Adam and Eve, his promises to Abraham and Sarah, his promises to Moses, to David, all of the promises of the Old Testament through the prophets, they have been given to us to know, not that we would just take the Old Testament and say, oh, that's out there, that's been back there. But Jesus has said, here's how I'm fulfilling every bit of it. God sent his own son to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king who is proclaiming this kingdom of heaven. And he is here. And he's told us in the last two weeks in this very chapter, here's how people are going to respond to the message of the king. Here's how God is going to separate believers and unbelievers and when that's going to happen. Here's how the kingdom will grow in the world. And here's how the kingdom will grow in your life. Here is how you should see obtaining entrance into that kingdom. Here's what it's worth. He's told us the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You and I, now, what do we do? He says, you have been trained for, uh, uh, as a scribe of the kingdom. For The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. God is saying, here's what I've done. I've got people that I've redeemed. 
what you and I now need to know is we see the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We see what God was doing with his people in the Old Testament. We see what God is doing with his people in the New Testament. And this brings to us an idea of his kingdom and his plan. So what do we do? We display as those who are now his. We declare the message of our great king. And so this morning my invitation is simply this. If you do not know the Lord, judgment is coming. Turn to him. Come to him. If you do know the Lord this morning, then rejoice in knowing God's story, knowing the secrets of the kingdom, and display that in your life. Live as a child of the king. Declare his message to those around you in your family, in your neighborhood, in your job, to the nations. We are called to both display and declare this wonderful kingdom of heaven and God's message in it.